Welcome back to the HPBA podcast. For this episode, we had the honor of interviewing Dr. Mary Dilhoff, who is an associate professor of surgery at The Ohio State University. Dr. Dilhoff received her medical degree from the University of Cincinnati, then completed internship and residency at Ohio State. She completed a surgical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering and then returned to Ohio State as staff. Dr. Dilhoff is extensively published with over 175 peer-reviewed publications. She is a well-known HPB heroine with recent publications discussing underrepresentation of female authors in HPB surgery, as well as a recent paper discussing the pipeline of female surgeons in HPB surgery. We had a great conversation about these papers and the themes they cover, as well as her experience building a robotic Whipple program at Ohio State. Tim and I really learned a lot and enjoyed this conversation. We hope you will too. So here's our interview with Dr. Mary Dilhoff. So welcome back to the uh, HPBA podcast. Tim and Tim here, and we're here today with uh, Mary Dilhoff from Ohio State. Uh, Dr. Dilhoff, thank you very much for your time. Uh, for those of you listening, it's a Friday afternoon, and she graciously gave us some time on a Friday afternoon. We appreciate it. Thank you for uh, for being here with us. Uh, really, what sparked our interest, obviously, your career in, in your building of a robotics program, but recently, this article that you published, Women in hepatopancreatic obiliary surgery, is there a pipeline problem? So we really wanted to start by talking about that and kind of, you know, you can, if you can tell us a little bit about what you guys found and then kind of your thoughts around the, um, the data and the conclusions of that paper. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here as this is uh, my first ever podcast. So uh, this is this is fun for me too. Worth it on a Friday night for sure. I'm very honored. Um, so the Women in HPV paper actually stemmed from, I, I love how some research really comes from like an earnest question that you want to answer. And so we were at the, at the HPBA and what it appeared to us, to many of us that are getting to be like mid-level um, females, that there just weren't many of us, but what it, it appeared that there's tons of trainees, there's fellows and residents that are presenting, but we're like, well, what happened? Like, where do we go? What happened to all of us? And so it, it really stemmed uh, a question of, well, is there just not as many of us interested in the first place and we're not presenting at the same rate the male residents and fellows are? Or do we have an interest initially and then we're dropping out for some reason? Are we not getting jobs? Are we not pursuing fellowship? Is there some other reason that um, that we're not getting there? So my, my uh, hypothesis was that we were dropping out. Like to me, I thought there was lots of interest and we were somehow either losing interest or not able to get jobs or not, you know, as you guys both have heard, I'm sure a million times, people tell us there's no HPV jobs, like, don't yeah. do this, you can never get a job. And so, um, so I, that's really what we were trying to figure out. So what, what, what were actually happening to the women? And I was exactly wrong, like we are <laughs> many times in research and that um, there's obviously fewer women presenting overall, but of the women that are presenting, a higher percentage of those females were actually sticking with getting um, HPV surgery jobs. And so really the problem was we're just not attracting enough young women in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it's really helpful in that we know where to, we know where to go start now, right? It's not that we need to retain, well, we do want to retain, of course, but we know we need to take one step further back into training and go get young residents involved and interested in doing research with us and presenting at meetings and then pursuing it. So it was, um, it was really rewarding to uh, be proved wrong like we often are and to, to really know, how, you know, uh, one better step to go get more women into our field. Yeah, so for, 
for the listeners here, we're talking about a paper that was, um, I think it's actually still in press, but um, a 20, 2020 publication in HPB. Um, first author is Dr. Merrill, um, and then Dr. Dilhoff's last author, and this is, as I said, in the journal HPB called Women in Pedopancreatobiliary Surgery, is there a pipeline problem? So um, the pipeline that you speak of is essentially getting to that position is, is what I took it as, right? And I think that that's, you know, just my, my take on it is it, was, it speaks a lot, very highly of the HPBA, to be honest with you, in the sense that once you're there, it's quite inspiring and we're, we're People are, are getting jobs and going into the specialty, what's awesome, but we got to get more people there. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, from all walks of life, obviously, but this is a great work, great start for, to highlight that. What are potential barriers that you see to that, uh, um, to getting more people there? And then what can we do next? So like the common one people will say is, you know, their lifestyle things that will inhibit women and such. And I'm honestly not sure that that's, actually borne out to be true. Like if you go talk to a lot of these young people, um, I don't think they're outright not choosing this because people are discouraging them because of lifestyle, but there's probably a lot of like small subconscious biases that play out, right? So um, if we're in a field that's dominated with males and they just subconsciously recruited males into their labs or asked them to do a paper with them, this is probably just slowly propagates towards more men. So I don't think it's that anybody is purposely excluding anyone. If anything, I think the HPV really is trying hard to build inclusiveness, not just in women, so um, just in diversity period. So this is just one part of building diversity in a group. And so we need diversity in lots of things, right? So we need diversity in race and ethnicity and other walks of life and, uh, you know, all kinds of thought, like we really need a true um, uh, increase in our diversity. And so this is just a single part of it. And so I think it's a start though, to how do we, how do we make this better? Um, You know, one of the things that came up in the article is that there has been an increase in female leadership in the AHPBA. Uh, we've had a female president recently. Do you think that that uh, that affects the pipeline, and did it affect you as a you know young and upcoming medical student and junior resident, having someone like you to look up to, so to speak? Um, and do you think that that's part of the the step in the right direction? It definitely is, and you'll hear a lot of people talk about you know we need to see it to be it, um, mm-hmm. and you know we've had this conversation with a few of us many a times in that. Do, do we really need to see it? Like there's a few, there's a small portion of people that are probably going to do some of these more difficult jobs, no matter what, right? Like we just have a passion for it. And we're going to do it, but those aren't the only people we want, right? We really mm-hmm. want, we want the whole diverse spectrum because it's better for all of us. We all get better. So maybe there are other people that um, they do need to see it to be, to be it. And um, I think we're seeing this like, you know, with, first black president or vice president of the United States, right? Like we do so in some ways we do need to see it to, to be it. And so I think as we get more diverse, we really will start attracting a more, um, you know, uh, diverse, like, we, you know, we'll look like the population, right? Like as we should. And so um, I think, um, I think this will really help. I think it does. I mean, obviously um, having a female president um, I think was helpful. And um, as we grow, I think 
drilling our, our diversity is the next thing, right? Like we, we obviously don't have many other colors um, among us either. We don't have, a, you know, a really diverse black um, uh, membership at this point. And so this is just a start to really build um, diversity. And they've started with the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, mm -hmm. committee in the HPABA this year. And I, so I think this intentional commitment to grow um, will really, I think will really reap these benefits over the next five to 10 years. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's very important, and HPVA has seemingly been pushing for that and doing a great job. Um, so, I mean, do you think that this? I mean, definitely in some of the other, in the commentary and the data that in the in the paper kind of talks about this. So maybe it's a rhetorical question, but I, I want to just put it out there. Is this a reflection of HPV specifically? I mean, as you said, there's other hard specialties, right? Um, but is it more just a reflection of surgical training in general? And on the heels of that question, you know, as the percentage of female trainees um, in surgery goes up, you know, how do we as a surgery community that is focused on HPV have that same proportion going into HPV surgery as we go forward? Right. So you had a great topic in that. So in medical students, right, we're slightly heavy uh, weighted towards females right now in the in the United States. Um, and obviously, as we move up into surgery, we drop off fast, right? So if you go into residence, we do slightly, you know, we're still hanging on, but we drop off at, at assistant professors, associate professors, and severely at, at full professors. And so is it that we just didn't catch up yet, right? Do we just need this, mm -hmm. these classes to make it through? It also appears that there's a drop off, though. And so I do think that we don't just need to sit tight and all of it will filter through. I think we do need to be, maybe it's best to say, just more welcoming to all, right? Like um, it doesn't need to be some job that that it can't be done or it's not inherent to someone's lifestyle or I love to work, but I also really love my family. I've got two young kids and um, I, I know some people say, well, you can't have it all. And I joke, I'll, my joking way of handling it all is like, I, uh, I, I'm always juggling, but I can't really juggle. So I toss up all the balls and then I pick them up off the floor. And <laughs> 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 that's my way of managing all the things. But like what I manage and it's good, right? Like I still have a really great home life and I get to see my kids and I have a really great work life. So I think we can do it. And so maybe it is that we need to see it to be it. I mean, I, <laughs> juggling and dropping them and picking them back up sounds like sounds certainly like my household, my wife's position as well. And it, it, there's no juggling. We're not that good. <laughs> I can't really do it. <laughs> I think I think in general, you you mentioned about you know the home life and and work life balance and things like that. All are all things that we've talked about more and more, even in my young career thus far. Don't tell you know don't tell my bosses, but you know like that's something I'm, that's very important to me, regardless of of sex, but. Um, you know, my dad, for example, was a surgeon and I didn't see him very much, you know, and that was not really uh, something that was on his agenda. You know, he's a great father and all, don't get me wrong. But like, it's definitely, we're all making progress in that department, right? Well, and you know, what you're probably discounting is you doing that as a male, making an effort, say, to take paternity leave and to be around your kids. You're actually helping your female colleagues because we're normalizing um, balance. 
And so you are helping. I, I actually, I used to kind of joke that one way to help things be a little bit more fair with maternity leave is make males take paternity leave. So if, when you had a kid and I had a kid, we both took off the same amount of time, we become more equal. And that it doesn't look suddenly bad for the female to have taken off for a child because we all took a month off for a child or two months off for a child or three, you know, how much ever time, you know, we, we deemed an appropriate amount of time. And so like you're helping move things forward by balance. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely, it looks like we're moving in the right direction. And, and I would hope that some, you know, that you definitely said there is a drop off and it sounds, you know, by reading the papers that there is, and but also hoping that the trend that we're seeing at least in in younger proportion of populations here are still kind of a the higher percentage that that drop off goes away and then we just it's a lead time bias sort of thing i hope that that's the way we're going right we all know like knowing what we know now right it, it's a little bit more encouragement to when you know we're thinking about writing that next paper well you know maybe we really do need to think about who have we written the last 10 papers for did we in a, like just subconsciously I'll pick white males, like I hope not, but what if we did? And if we did that, do we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about, oh, you know, maybe I need to look harder about who I'm gonna write this next paper with. And maybe you'll find that next super talented young black female that's gonna be the next superstar HPV surgeon. Totally, yeah. Well, similar to kind of on the, on the same idea, but a different topic, um, was, I like this paper as well in Journal of Gastrointestinal Surgery looking at authorship. So the HPB paper was on presentation at the HPBA, which, which, which is definitely, I mean, just as a, on a side note, I, my mentor took me to H, the HPBA from very, very young residency time, and I went very often. And that's what inspired me to want to be an HPB surgeon. And so seeing that paper speaks to everybody. And we need to get more people there. But the authorship question is is an excellent one. Um, maybe we could talk yeah, about this, talk about this a little bit. So for our listeners, it's in the Journal of Gastrointestinal Surgery, also from 2020. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Farouk is the the first author, and Dr. Dilhoff's the last author. And it's called Analysis of Authorship in Hepatobancreatic Biliary Surgery: Women Remain Underrepresented. So what was what was the which paper came first, by the way, actually? And what was the impetus of this one? Well, this Dr. Pal uh, Tim Pollock will love. We were working on the women um, presenting paper, but he's so fast. So he, he, we started talking about this paper. And of course, he is so fast that he we pushed that one through. The, the, um, the uh, authorship paper came before then the presentation paper. <laughs> Because he's so uh, quick at pushing along this yeah. uh, this other one, so so that's how it came. I was actually working on the one before, but we pushed the the other one through faster. Um, okay. so, but in a similar vein, we we wanted to evaluate um, authorship and first and last authorship, and over time, are we represented um, across the spectrum um, similar to males? And of course, we found that um, we have. Um, much less women authorship over the years um, than males. And so it's a very similar um, uh, thing that's been found in many um, aspects of academic research. It's just like um, uh, women have been funded less. So it's kind of a similar vein that we've known from many other things and that um, there's barriers we 
probably don't realize and aren't evaluated in that paper and authorship, right? Do we, you know, are, are women doing other tasks? Do they have other tasks at home? Do they have other tasks at work? Are they not becoming first and last last authors at the same rates as males? Um, are they getting accepted in the same rates? Are they getting funded? So there's all these issues at hand that we probably poorly understand at this point. And it's probably a bunch of unconscious bias if I if I had to guess that just adds up to this. But it, it doesn't solve any issues. I think it just helps us bring attention to what are the issues that we have and it, that will help us start to make some plans to try to make things more equal. Yeah. Did you, in that in that analysis, did you guys look if if a senior author, author was female, were they more likely to have a female junior author? Like, did you guys look at that correlation at all? I didn't we see did it in the not, manuscript, but I was just curious. We'll Which have thing? that in the data, but we didn't, um, yeah, we didn't look at that. That is very interesting. Oh, I mean, if I had to guess at the answer, I'm going to say no. Like, you've heard of people talk about the queen bee phenomenon. Oh, so yeah. when you have very few women in a, in a field or specialty, they tend to try to push out other, the theory is they tend to try to push out other women because there's only room for like mm. one queen bee, so-called, call it. That tends to go away as you get more people. Like, so as you get more women, as it would become more uh, split equally, those phenomenons tend to go away. So I bet though in HPB, since it's so, it's so um, male dominated still, I wonder if you'd find that there's some kind of queen bee phenomenon that you're mm. like, that, that subconsciously, you know, you're not actually going and helping other young women. Interesting. I didn't wanna, well, just to, to the main finding, the summary for everyone is that I got was that the percentage of combination first and last authorships among women is has increased over a decade by 10%, which is good. Um, but that's predominantly due to a, an increase in first authorship and the last authorship has remained stagnant, which is bad. But I took some hope from that, from, <clears throat> excuse me, from you know the, the previous publication we talked about and that maybe there is a little bit of a lead time bias. Maybe those first authors now can move towards more of a mentorship role um, and all the efforts that we've discussed so far and, and we'll go forward with um, towards diversity and inclusion for these, um, these future HPV surgeons will lead to an overall increase among both. Um, what do you think about that? I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I think, and I don't think um, we should like relax, like, oh, it's coming. Let's just yeah, sit tight and it'll happen, right? Like, I don't think that, but I, I, it does make me hopeful though, that that is what's happening. Like they are coming. We just need to keep encouraging them that they can do this. They, they can do this job as well as anyone else can do this job. Um, and have the things they want outside of outside of um, work too, if that if that's what they want. I think that's the key, right? Like we can all do what we want to do. Like you want to work to a hundred hours a week, that's fine. And if you want to manage a family and have kids, that's fine too. Um, at our training program at Ohio State, actually, many of the women have kids during training. Actually, so there are many of our residents, both males and females, that all have children during training. And are managing in a way that I can't ever imagine that I would have done so well at. And so I think they're really handling it. Um, I think we're being more thoughtful about making training um, uh, tolerable to them so that they can have, you know, a family at a normal-ish age. And so 
I think that'll help too, right? I think they're going to realize that, hey, I've done this. I can have my kids already in, you know, in residency and I can go on and do whatever I want to do. Well, certainly, definitely, we're all learning to be much more dynamic for sure. And that uh, that's definitely got to be a part of it. I think that we usually start these podcast episodes out. We were so, obviously so excited to start talking about this stuff, but um, we usually start these podcasts out with maybe telling us a little bit about how you got to where you are, what your what your 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 career path has been. But also, I'd love we'd love to hear about what drew you to um, I know both surgical oncology and HPV style practice. Um, and and how we got to here today and obviously that'll give us an insight into a lot of what we've talked about so i am a complete surprise surgical oncologist and that i grew up um on a farm in rural ohio and i, I you know if you look back i actually found a letter like when i was a kid that i thought i was going to be a doctor but as i like progressed into high school like i i mean it was really in rural ohio it was rare for many of the kids in my class to go to college, let alone say they were going to be a doctor. And so as I got into high school, I had a guidance counselor that was like really unsupportive, like so unsupportive. He didn't turn in my applications for scholarships because he didn't think I could do it. And mm -hmm. so I started thinking like um, they started, tell, you know, people started telling me, you can't be a doctor. Like you just can't do that. Like it's not, you know, you're never going to make it. It's not going to happen. So I actually started college. Um, applying to pharmacy school. So I went to college, I applied to pharmacy school, I got in, I went and got a job at Walgreens because I was going to figure out, you know, how this worked. And it was awful. I absolutely <laughs> hated working at Walgreens. And I was like, I just don't know if this is going to work so well. And so now I'm in college and I was like, well, I'm just going to do what I wanted. I wanted, I always wanted to go to medical school. And I started figuring out that I could graduate college in three years and I could just go to medical school. And at that time, pharmacy school was going to take me six years and then I, medical school and college was going to take me seven then. And I was like, well, I'm just going to do what I wanted to do then. And so, but yeah. I thought then I would go back and in, into rural Ohio, be a family doc. You know, was, I kind of grew up with that, that um, family doc that was pillar of the community, all respected. Mm -hmm. And I really looked up to them. And so, I was going to go back and be a family doctor. And so I started medical school with those intentions. And I did my first surgery rotation. My first rotation of third year was surgery. And I fell head over heels in love. And so then I thought, well, I'm going to be, well, I spent the whole year trying to find something else to do first. Because again, I wasn't supposed to be, someone actually asked me, why would you want to do that to your family? And I was like, uh, well, I like my family. It's not, I don't want to harm them, but I really love <laughs> surgery. And so I looked through all the other specialties. I tried hard. Like I rotated on like every sub-surgery, sub-specialty, thinking I'll find something that's better. But I finally made the realization that um, everybody works hard. Like when I made the realization that like mm -hmm. medicine doctors work hard, family doctors work hard, all these people work hard. If I'm going to work hard, I might as well do what I want and work hard. And so mm -hmm. that that kind of sealed the surgery deal. But again, I was going to go back home and be a general surgeon. So that was my plan. So I um, started residency at Ohio State and I was trying to force my program director to let me finish residency in five years because generally the residents in the program did at least one year of other training, whether it was in the lab or got an advanced degree or did something else. And I was trying to convince him to let me go, just let me go through. I want to get a job and be done. And he he was adamant that I go out to the lab and thank goodness he was. One of our surgical oncologists, Mark Bloomston, um, 
I somehow, for somehow I got his attention and he wanted me to come to his lab. So he worked pretty hard to get me to come to his lab. And I said, fine, I'll come for one year. And I was still dragging my feet a little bit. And um, I loved it. So I went for one year and then I went to my program director about three fourths through the year and said, hey, I want you to let me have another year. And he's like, <laughs> really? Like you, you went kicking and screaming. And so in that couple of years, I really, um, so I got a taste for surgical research. Um, I had a taste for cancer, you know, cancer research. And that really, um, that really is what drove HPB. So the research kind of attracted me and then the operations followed. And I, I like the technical mm -hmm. demands of our specialty too. And so it um, definitely not where I would have ever thought that I would end up in an academic super specialist career when I really thought I would go back to rural Ohio and help rural Ohioans. Right. So then on to, to fellowship training um, at, at, a, at a place in New York, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you it. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> so, but, so, uh, so it was in the lab with Blimston, and Blimston geared me up all those years to, that Anderson, you have to go to Anderson. Like, you have to go to Anderson. And so, um, so I was working hard to get into Anderson. And um, so I went and interviewed for Anderson's interviews first. And I went there and of course it's awesome, right? It's beautiful. It's a, you know, just a giant, awesome place. And I was pretty enamored. And we're so, like, yeah, yeah. Right? we were too. <laughs> and so I went to New York. So I went to Memorial then for my, was the last interview. And I went, um, you remember they used to have, I don't know if they still did it when you guys interviewed, did they have dinner up on the top floor of um, yeah. the so we're up there and we meet a few of the fellows and I like, I was, I was just like, this is the place I'm coming here. And I, yeah. I called my husband. I was like, I'm really sorry. He wanted to go to Texas because he's an engineer and that, that would have worked a little better for him. I was like, I'm really sorry. We're, we're coming, we're moving to New York. <laughs> and so, so, um, I, so that's what, like, so, um, so memorial uh, to um, Dr. Bloomson's dismay. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I put over, uh, over Anderson and got lucky enough. I was thrilled, obviously, to match there. Actually, one of the better days I remember of my career was when my, my mentor, Mark, called me. I was at a Browns game with my husband, and he called and said that I'd matched a memorial. It was during the national anthem, and I was trying to take a phone call during the national anthem, and I knew that was a little rude. And But he told me I matched a memorial, and my husband and I are sitting there in, at the Browns game going, oh, my God. <laughs> all the fans at the Browns stadium were like, why is anyone cheering? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was the most excited Browns fan that day. <laughs> I'm a Steelers fan, anyways. But yeah, that—that's we really. I remember we were interviewing Tim and I are the same year, and I think we. Had, mm -hmm. I remember leaving there and having a great time, and then we got dinner with with Motaz, and and I was like, this place is awesome. I know, like, it, it, like it, they can they can definitely uh, uh, woo it's you. It's an impressive 24 hours for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yes. But, my uh, my yeah. wife came with me to interview, and she was less enamored with uh, living in Manhattan. So that <laughs> mine also he um he's an so he's an engineer. So working in Texas yeah. would have been super easy, right? So tons of engineering jobs. He was totally geared up to like let's go to Texas. This will be great. Yeah. And I was like, 
let's move to New York. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and I'll jokingly tell you guys, this is not going to be private anymore. So everybody's going to know what I thought of myself. So I, <laughs> in Columbus, um, people would tell me as a resident, you're like way too aggressive. You need to go to the East Coast. And uh, so I really thought I was moving to the East Coast and staying. Like I never thought yeah. we were going to come to Columbus. I thought like, Hey, I'm like, everybody told me all this time I'm too aggressive for Columbus, right? Like, I was going to New York to stay there forever. It's amazing how it comes for a reason. Where we're supposed to end up, right? Like, that um, yeah. somehow it works. And, like, you guys know, you make lifelong friends. Like, this is, you guys are great yeah. examples of it. Uh, what about getting back to Ohio State? So, how did that work out, uh, getting back? And then, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on. You know, do you feel like you hit roadblocks? I mean, you had that that small kind of uh, vignette of somebody telling you this is you can't do this, you can't do surgery because it's going to be too much to have a family, et cetera. And do you think that? I guess do you think they would say that to a male resident or male medical student? And also, if you could talk a little bit about kind of, you know, what you think you faced along the way that maybe Tim and I didn't. Yeah. So you know, honestly, at the time, I. Um, I was one of those women that um, just pretended to be male and that was my way to make it through. And I, actually it worked very well for me in that like I was one of the boys and so comments like that and stuff, I very easily brushed off and you know carried on anyway. But I think those comments probably affect a lot of people and that's where we need mm -hmm. to be, that's where we can really do a better job, right? So if those things never got said or we were just encouraging of, all people that showed an interest in HPV um, will we'll keep, will we'll obviously attract um, a more diverse crowd. And so those things will definitely, you know, right, you're only going to hear it so much and we're going to, we're going to lose probably, you know, some at every step and some will persist and make it through. And so, but what I've learned over the years, I've, I don't know, I don't want to call myself softer, but in some ways, I'm like, well, everybody doesn't, every woman doesn't need to act like a boy to be an HPB surgeon. Um, and one, um, she's a vascular surgeon now, but was a resident with me. Um, she used to like wear pink and bedazzle her pager and do all these things that I thought was like way too girly um, to be a surgeon. And you know, I, I never said anything to her. I was very careful to like not say anything, but honestly, I was secretly judging. And I regret doing that because she's a great surgeon. And what I've become, what I finally figured out over the years is that, you know, you're allowed to be a girl and do what you want, just mm -hmm. like anybody else can like, you can do whatever you want and still be a good surgeon. You can dress how you want. You can do all these things. As long as you're being a good surgeon, you can. So her bedazzling her pager taught me a lot. <laughs> like I kind of learned that like, you know, you don't really need to act like a male to do this job. You can be whoever you want to be. And so um, even I've learned a lot and obviously we all have biases, right? Even us women have biases. And I think it, it really um, helps you kind of evaluate some of those judgments you make on other people that really we should just mm -hmm. be encouraging of everybody to do what they're passionate about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, um, you know, I, I think that this, this is, a, we, we, we thought this would be very important to talk about, especially timely given these two publications that, you know, we urge everyone to read, but maybe we should move on to, to I'd like to yeah. hear a little bit about your practice at Ohio State and, and your, and setting up shop there. And I know that Tim and I have heard and, and we've discussed um, previously at other meetings, just the, the integration of robotics into your practice. Mm. Um, this is, um, 
So coming back to Ohio State has been very fortunate in, in many ways. Um, my family is a couple of hours away, so that made it um, more enticing to come here, but really professionally, it's been very fulfilling. Um, and learning, so I had some robotic experience um, as a fellow, so we did robotic gastrectomies, and so we had advanced robotic <clears throat> skills, but very little HPV. And so, um, so learning this as an attending was actually really rewarding. It was a lot of fun to like kind of get settled into practice and know that your open skills were very good and be ready to like, all right, let's like, let's take on a new challenge. And it really, that's really how we approached it. We really went to school. So we like started over, we did all the robotic drills. We went to several places. We had Pittsburgh help us and Martini help us. And we did cadaver labs and we really knew by the time we like really got our robotic programs up and running that we were, we could do it and we could be successful and open a safe program. But so my goals were not just a safe program, but something that was um, sustainable. So I didn't want to do a couple robot whipples and it'd be so painful or difficult mm -hmm. that we'd just stop doing them. And so my goal really was I wanted to get a program going that even if I wasn't there, would be sustainable. And so that was really the goals with all of the training. And, and I think what we showed is you can do this safely. You can um, you can learn this skill um, and start a program in a safe way. That's not, um, it's good, that's good for patients. And it's not so, it's not so painful to the surgeon that they'll stop doing it after one or two. Yeah. yeah. Can you describe kind of, you know, the first maybe 10 cases, you know, who, who's at the console? How long are you there? Who's at the bedside? Are you trading off? Are you taking breaks, et cetera? Kind of describe your, your recipe, let's say for somebody who is thinking about starting a program like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And something like definitely be thoughtful about it. So we did all of them at first with two attendings, which was really helpful. Um, and we will joke with each other that we are basically cheerleading each other, right? Like just when you have two attendings, agreeing on anatomy like things just go a lot easier right you're not yeah. in there by yourself and it really helps what you just touched on about how long you're at the console what are you doing this is the robot fatigue that i heard um mm -hmm. uh dr hogue mention uh several times and you know early on i actually didn't know quite what she was talking about i'm like robot fatigue you're sitting down all day isn't this like the best thing ever <laughs> yeah like, yeah like they don't get fatigued and i'm sitting so right we surely can go for a long time and I, um, there is this, there is something about having your face in this, in that console that for, for that amount of time that you actually, you, you'll understand it once you sit in there for several hours. So our method was um, for that reason, and we wanted our, both of our skills to progress the same. So we would trade off after basically every big portion of the operation at first. Mm -hmm. So um, someone's going to start in and do the coker and then we're, we would swap so like so then and then the next case we would just start opposite so then we would switch through and like for the for the reconstructions one person does the pj one person does the ha one person does the dj we'd switch back and forth for those so it really helped robot fatigue and then our skills were the exact same too like when we were operating on each other's patients we there was no difference like it wasn't well it's my patient so i'm gonna you know you're not gonna sew the pj or whatever it's really it's it's our patient and we we did it together, and so we progressed our skills together, and that was um that was really good for growing the program really efficiently and safely, right? We were recruiting then both of our patients, so we had a good volume from the beginning, 
Um, and it makes the day a lot less stressful. Like um, if you've done robot whipples by yourself and you're the only one in the room, it does get stressful. You can feel your like shoulders up at your ears and <laughs> sitting at the robot because you're stressed. And like um, it does, it, it, it turns it into a fun day. Like if you guys have got the pleasure of operating with a partner at any point in your yeah. career, it's a, it's a lot of fun to operate with another partner. So it really, um, when you do that a few years into practice, it kind of just, it, it refreshes everything. And so mm. it was really rewarding and fun to get to start a new thing. And then we went through um, a lot of changes. My partner I started with left. And so um, bringing on new partners to do it has been fun. And so it kind of like keeps things, you know, fresh and, and um, moving. And how did you... Um... How did you navigate and sort of negotiate with the program director and kind of the residency? You know, now you're taking potentially cases away from residents at your institution. How was that conversation? And and then have you are you now a residents now getting to the console? And how did you start that process? As well? Yes, that is really important. So I think um, at the beginning we all had the understanding that this is complicated procedure and safety was our, I mean, safety still is always right, the number one goal. And so, um, so at the beginning, it was, uh, it was understood that the residents, while we're, you know, in this learning curve, aren't going to get to do tons of it. Although I would argue that as a resident, when you haven't done many HPV cases, that the anatomy that you get to see on a robot Whipple is so beautiful that you're still learning a lot because you can finally see everything, right? Like Sometimes can, I think it's hard to uh, convince the residents of that, but I think that's probably true. Yeah. Totally agree with you. It is because they, yeah. they probably don't realize at the time just how much anatomy they can learn from, from watching. But as we progress now, it's not always two attendings anymore. And now it's a stepwise, I, there's a really easy way to, to stepwise teach a Whipple operation, right? And so once someone knows their robot skills and you've seen them do other cases that demonstrate they at least know how to use the robot, right? So you're not mm -hmm. teaching them how to clutch and move things because this isn't the operation to start teaching yeah, yeah. the very beginning. Once you know someone's safe and they know how to use the robot, well then just watching someone take out the gallbladder, you can assess a lot of robot skills. How do you handle tissue? Can you actually use the robot? Um, you can even have them throw a stitch and see what they can do. So there's number one. So can you do that? And then then you move on. Then, okay, I know you can do that safely. All right, so now you're ready to like, sew the GJ now. And then you can watch them. Can they sew? How do they handle tissue? Are they safe? And then, then they can sew an HJ, and then they can sew the PJ. So you, a Whipple is a really beautiful tool to teach robotic skills because there's such a good stepwise progression of skills. So you can really mm -hmm. watch someone like I'm an excellent fellow now that like, I mean, you can just, I mean, he can move through all those skills so quickly. He can demonstrate, yep, I can do this. Well, yeah, you're fine. Go to, you know, go to the next thing. And so we've tried to, um, to do this in a way. So the hard part about that in nowadays training with only a month with someone, you might not get them mm -hmm. through all those steps in one month, right? Because you might not, you're not going to do 10 robot whipples in that month. So what we tried to do at Ohio State is to try to document in a, in a way from a, one attending to the next, someone's skills in a reliable fashion. So we have a way to, to grade them um, on a, on their robot skills, and then pa that gets passed along to the next attending. So then you don't have to demonstrate to each individual attending, yes, I know how to take the gallbladder out, and I know how to handle tissue. They're supposed to believe the, the, you know, the evaluation and let you go on to that next step. And so we've tried to eliminate some of the holdups in 
and training and that you don't have just one trainee for six months. And so we're yeah. trying to eliminate some of those things and kind of build their robot skills earlier. That eliminates the, the question, have you done this before? <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, really, I mean, but part of that, and um, we've all seen it and it's, you know, you get to do more with an attending that knows what you can do, but mm -hmm. that's hard to start over with a new attending every month and then prove to them what you can do. And so we're trying to use some technology to, to lessen that, you know, that, that burden. Yeah. Um, well, we, you know, during our time um, here at Anderson is, you know, had an introduction of the robotic platform really becoming a full swing here. And so we were definitely a part of that early, you know, trainee wave and it's, and it can be more frustrating even, you know, at the fellowship level, because you're not going to be there for seven years of general surgery training. You're trying to get the, every last drop you can out of, you know, these places that we've been fortunate enough to train at. And, um, but it's amazing though, that the difference between fellowship and, and residency um, is that now when I watch surgery, I get so much more out of it. Whereas I remember being an intern and second year resident at the bedside for colorectal cases or whatever. And, you know, although I I did enjoy it, I didn't know what I was looking at, you know? Mm -hmm. So there is mm -hmm. something to be said for, you know, um, just being there, especially further along in training um, rather than avoiding it. And I think a lot of times it gets avoided because of the perception that they're not, the trainees aren't gonna get, be able to do anything. Yeah, and, and when they're young, even the little things, I'm sure you knew, like when you started out in practice, like um, the, um, the little things sometimes will be the big hiccups in these cases with all this equipment, right? So if you don't know that, you know, the ro something's wrong with the robot, it's not working right, but you don't know how to fix it and there's no one else in there who knows how to fix it, then, then, then it's all, you know, it's all a mess. It makes your whole day stressful. But really, you could have learned all those things like when you were scrubbing at the bedside, right? But it's boring to scrub mm -hmm. at the bedside and people don't want to do it. But really those little, little things in setup were the important parts. I remember I was proctoring a robot case and um, they just didn't have the robot docked right. And like, you know, there was just a few things that needed done properly. And I knew, I, I'm like really um, kind of adamant that you learn how all the equipment works so that if, some, if whoever's there that day doesn't know how to use it, you can fix or troubleshoot. Right. And yeah, it took a few seconds, but like, if you don't know those things, it really makes your day a lot harder. So if, we, if I could somehow convince the residents early on that the little things in setup will make your life a lot easier that first year out in attending. I mean, my, my favorite thing to do is to leave, do the time out and then leave and come back and see how they docked it. And, no, and then so point out all the things that are wrong, let them, you know. Let them put the ports in by themselves? Or I mean, in, this like, is more for like gallbladders and stuff. So you, you know? yeah, so you but, but yeah, more complex stuff, I, draw, I make them draw out where the ports are gonna go and then I leave and come back. That's and it's like, you know, you didn't do patient clearance, like this arm is too close, you know, that kind of stuff. I think, and it, you know, it's sort of learning the hard way, but before anything bad happens, you know, it's just, it's simple stuff. But uh, like you said, if you don't know what all the buttons do, then you don't know how to do that stuff. And, and yeah, it can make the whole the case. I, I always see too, is like whenever they're struggling, their third arm is never doing anything. Yep. So, yep. And then my other yeah, I think Dr. Martini told me that the difference between a good and bad robotic surgeon is how many times they use a swap pedal. And so I tell all my residents that, and I think it's very true. Yes, and then the other is whenever it's not working and you um, you want to blame something or the equipment or something that's not working, like it's not working. I'm like, yeah. just whatever the robot's telling you to do, 
it'll fix it. <laughs> just listen to the robot. It's always human error. If you just read whatever it's telling you, that'll fix the problem. I mean, what were the biggest barriers that you saw to getting the, the robotics program off the ground? So we were really fortunate and a lot of the big barriers that people struggle with, we were fortunate enough to have support for. So one of the big things is time, right? Like how do you convince your boss to give you two surgeons and then, you know, the RVUs, they're going to build an unlisted pancreas procedure. So you're going to get, you know, um, a little over half the RVUs for this procedure. So how are you going to convince your department that that's okay? So mm. we were fortunate enough that this was really important to Dr. Pollock. And so we got, we were, we were given the support to do it. So we had, um, you know, we picked our OR team that we wanted. So we had the, the best staff that we could get. We had a um, robotic first assistant that trained with us. Um, we were given the OR time and an XI robot whenever we wanted it um, and had the ability to have two surgeons there. So those are the things that I think if you're gonna go to a new place and they want you to build a robotics program, you really need them to give you that support. Um, if you're gonna go and attempt to like do a robot Whipple in the same time as an open Whipple or quicker because you have to make those RVUs and there's no other person to help and you're just gonna get set up for failure. And so if you can get to a situation that it's important for the institution to have a robotic program, then they gotta give you the support to do it. So right, so you need the you need enough robot time, you need the other people there that know how to use the robot so that the day isn't, you know, pure chaos when you ask for equipment. Um, and, and do you need another partner or something to do some of these more complicated procedures? And so if you get um, your boss behind you and give you support, that takes away most of the real hiccups. Um, because other than that, like from a clinical perspective, then once we got into a rhythm, you know, after those first handful were done, we really had a lot of fun. Like, it, you know, it really was a good, um, fun day. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just stressful so that you didn't want to do the next one. Mm -hmm. Right. And what kind of cases are you doing now? And did you start with, I guess, are you, you know, what, what would you suggest for your first five? And then now are you doing anything robotic? Are you still selective? Yeah, well, I, so I had, we had a, like a little interesting approach. I thought one of the holdups to getting a program going and really getting through the learning curve in some efficient amount of time, um, I thought was just how many got booked. I thought if we were going to book one a month, then every month it's going to seem like you're doing a brand new thing. Everybody's going to be like, oh my gosh, there's a robot people in the schedule and nobody's going to know the equipment. And so I thought it was really important that we really need to try to do one a week so that this gets to be routine for everybody. It's nothing, it's not exciting to anyone in the room. All the equipment is pulled and easy. And that, so I, so our method in doing that was we were less selective for some of the things that some people would tell you to be selective about. So I wouldn't do any, we wouldn't choose anyone with any vascular involvement. So we did eliminate that, but other reasons like BMI or anything like that, we would do. So if you'd had, you know, many, many open operations or you had vascular involvement, that was our real only exclusion criteria. But knowing we did that, we, I was also willing to accept a higher conversion rate in that early mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't count that as a failure. So as long as we were safe and we didn't have an emergency conversion, because I didn't I don't I didn't want emergency conversions, but if we just weren't progressing because the person's BMI was really high that and we converted, I didn't count that as failure. Um, I figured at that point it, if it's not causing harm to the patient, and I didn't think it was, 
that the, that everybody else so that the whole team still got benefit from it. You know, the case still got set up properly. You started, you know, doing the dissection properly. Everybody got their, um, you know, um, some learning from it. And so that's how we managed, which is different than some people. Some people will tell you in your first 10, be super selective. It's got to be the right mm -hmm. BMI and the perfect patient and the perfect tumor. And so um, I, I had a little bit different opinion. And that worked for us because it really did get us through the learning curve. And we did have a high conversion rate in that first. 20 or so the conversion rate was higher than many people's but as long as what we only had one emergency conversion in the first 50 and that was really the um that was really my criteria for you know maintaining a safe program i didn't want emergencies to happen right and at what point were you converting are you like you know doing most of the mobilization getting the sma and then you're like ah this is too sticky or um, we're not progressing well or was it a mix yeah, in the early phase, you usually knew before that it wasn't progressing fast yeah. enough, even before you got to the incident. And um, like at some point, right, if you look up and it's noon and you're really not making yeah. good enough yeah. progress, it's just too long. Yeah. Um, so like really it was like, are we not making real continued progress in the case? And so if, if we got to that, it was like, it's too long. Let's let's sure. be done. Sure. All right. Great. That's very important. That's all, and that's important, especially when you're talking about getting allocated time and the resources. Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. being a good steward of that for the patient, but also you know your institution. Yeah, you can't be in there for 12 hours, for, you oh, know, for every case. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, we've blown through an hour of your time on a Friday evening, so we want to be respectful of your time. But uh, yeah, it's been great. It's really a good conversation. We appreciate your time and. Uh, anything else you want to uh, put out there to the HPBA? Yeah, well, um, I'm very appreciative of getting to talk meet you two and get to know you um, both a little bit better. And for the HPBA and all the other um, HPB surgeons out there and our hopeful HPB surgeons, this is really a great specialty. And I think you'll find, like many, that this is a really great community and being part of it is like, is really special. And so I'm um, I'm very thankful for that. And so I'm glad to get to meet you both and um, get to talk to some of our um, other HPB um, colleagues out there. Yeah, thank you so much. It's all about inspiration. Hopefully, we'll uh, hopefully we'll actually get to talk in person in August. We're all waiting yeah. for that first in person yeah, meeting. I sure hope we see you in person and COVID's under control and we're all vaccinated. <laughs>